0: Thank you very much for the opportunity, we're honored to be here, and my wife and I are here, and well, uh, it's just it's good to be here, I think she's in here somewhere, there you are, man. and uh, some of our guys from uh, back in Oregon. If you got your Bibles, turn to John chapter number 8, what a great song that was, Any Doubt That You Love Me, was settled at the cross. My wife and I have been married for almost 35 years, Um, I met her when I was in sixth grade, and uh, she was in fifth grade. Uh, We got married two weeks later. Uh, It was Kentucky. You had to wait two weeks. Um, But uh, if I could say this just while you're finding John there, boy, the best decision I ever made in this life apart from salvation was choosing my wife. And I'm not, I'm not sure that I've ever accomplished a thing in life, but if I have, it's been by the grace of God and the favor of a good wife. And you're in a perfect place, man, I'll tell you. I was, uh, you're in you're a great spot, great season of life to be choosing your life's partner and uh, enter into that very prayerfully and carefully. But, boy, I'm so grateful for what God has done for me through my wife. John chapter number 8. Verse number 43 through 45. Let's stand together just very quickly, and uh, then we'll have you seated. (laughs) Verse number 43, why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? You're of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe believe me not. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask for your help, your favor. We pray you'd guide and direct our words and our thoughts today. We'd ask you to speak to every heart as you alone can and are uniquely equipped to do. And I pray that you'd help us now in these few moments that we share. Bless these great young people from all across the country and around the world that have converged on this place to train for ministry God would you bless them and I pray that these closing weeks of the semester would be weeks where they would finish well finish strong amen. and may you be pleased by what said Don may it be honoring and uplifting to you we ask it in Jesus name amen you may be seated in 35 years of ministry and different friends that I've had and and acquaintances that I've met, and growing up in church, like probably many of you did, and um, uh, by the way, that we were in church because a man handed my dad a gospel track. That was it. I really never knew him to be a soul winner, but he handed my dad a gospel track. I was with my dad at a lumber company on a Saturday afternoon, loading 2 befores in the back of a pickup truck, and uh, my dad w- went into the, uh, the truck, put it over the visor. The next morning, we went to church. And it was on that day that I saw my wife in a group uh, combined opening assembly in a Sunday school room. And that one day, that one event changed everything for me. So never underestimate the power of a gospel track. Never underestimate that. I'm here today because of that gospel track 45 years ago. But in these years of ministry, one thing that has been clear is the, the devil comes along and he'll throw some lies your way. And so with the Lord's help, I want to speak on that thought this morning. And I'll title the message, Falsehoods to Failure falsehoods to failure. I think the first one that uh, probably many of us succumb to from time to time is don't don't believe that God doesn't love you. I love the song they just sang. It leads right into it. But, you know, we we spend a fortune. Our country, our culture spends millions and millions of dollars trying to make people love us. We'll change our appearance, we'll fix this and hope that somebody is satisfied or drawn to us and we'll do our best uh, to be, be uh, attractive to another. We'll, uh, we'll buy this clothes, this outfit, this wardrobe, we'll fix our hair this way. We'll do whatever we can to try to garner the attention and favor of another. But do you know that today you don't have to do that for God? There's nothing you could ever do that could make God love you more than He loves you today. God's pleased and honored when we're obedient to him, but it's not dependent. That is not, uh, his love is not dependent upon your obedience. He loves you either way. Sometimes we feel like, and we're so fickle sometimes in relationships, we think, well, I got to do this so so so-and-so will approve. I've got to do this so so so-and-so will love me. But you don't have to do that for God. God loves you because God is love. It's his divine character. It's his holy character. It's wonderful that God would love me. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Don't ever let songs like that get old to you. Oh, how marvelous! Oh, how wonderful! And my songs shall ever be. I truly today even stand amazed that God could love me, and yet he does. He doesn't love you more because you're obedient and gave out a gospel track. I was talking to a guy, at, uh, uh, I was in Dallas last week, and I was talking to a gentleman at the airport, a uh, young man whose name was Jonathan, and I w- gave him a gospel track, and I was chatting it up with him at the shoe shine Hub, and he was shining my shoes, and I, I told him, I said, uh, he said, what do you And I said, I'm a pastor, and that's always a great inroad, by the way. And so I, I began to talk to him, and he said, I'm a PK. He said, I grew up in Pontiac, Michigan, my dad is still a a pastor there, he said, but I'm a prodigal. He said, I don't even consider myself a PK anymore, I'm a prodigal. And I remember saying to him, I said, listen, I know this, you've got a mom and dad back home in their 70s that are still praying for you, Jonathan, and you have a God in heaven who still loves you. Because God is love. Don't just get so used to and immune to it. You could never lose the love of God. God loves you. I love the song. It's one of my favorites by Frederick Lehman. He and his daughter had been traveling, and and, um, of course, he wrote the first two verses to that song, but he found the third verse, which is so powerful. I mean, the lyrics of it. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Don't ever let the love of God fade from your senses. Don't ever take it for granted and be ever grateful for it. If you leave this college and you turn your back on God and you get away from the things of the faith and you get to a downward point in your life and you think, God could not possibly love me anymore. Look at what I've done and look at how I've lived. And we would pray that you would never make that turn in your life. But God will love you every bit then as he does today. Because you don't earn the love of God. God loves you. I'm talking to someone today, I would imagine a crowd this size, college young people, and you've wondered about that. I don't have any talents. I don't have any gifts. I don't have any natural ability, and and I'm kind of shy and awkward and backward. I'm not sure that God would love you. God loves you, young man. God loves you, young lady. If the dew of sin is fresh on your brow this morning, God still loves you because God is love. The first lie to not believe falsehoods to failures. Don't believe that God doesn't love you. Secondly, don't ever believe that sin is worth it. Don't ever believe that sin is worth it. The Bible does remind us. Sometimes people will say, well, the Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season. Yeah, but you got to think about the totality of Scripture. Always give a warning about resting, W-R-E-S-T, or twisting, wrestling, or grappling with the Word of God. It's not for private interpretation. You can take a passage and say, well, I think the Word of God says this, but you got to look at it the whole counsel of the Word of God. The Bible says that Moses choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. May I tell you this this morning, don't ever believe that sin is worth it. It's been said that sin is the greatest detective, it always gets its man. And it always, the Bible, the Word of God tells us, be sure your sin will find you out. And so you may think, well boy, I got away with this, I got away with that. I'm reminded sometimes, as I think about, just in way of simple illustrations, the life I lived. I just turned 57, not too long ago, and I look back over the years of my life, and man, there's a whole lot of sin in 57 years. There's a whole lot of bad thoughts in 57 years, words I wish I'd never said, places I wish I'd never been, anger that I wish I'd never entertained, and words which I wish I'd never spoken. And don't ever think for one moment that sin will be worth it. Some of you will wrestle that, particularly in your youth. The Bible reminds us in a way of caution, let no man despise thy youth. And you're going you're gonna to face some temptations in life, but don't ever think for a moment that sin is worth it. May I say this about that, just kind of a, a, a sub-thought, sin never runs away and hides. It never does. A reminder of the story, perhaps you've heard of, I think it was just a year or so ago, Billy, Billy Knight was a basketball player not too far from here at the University of California, Los Angeles campus, UCLA. And he played there in the latter part of the 90s into, I think, 2001, 2002. He was very successful. He was all, all Pac-12. And, um, man, he was, a, he was great, and everybody liked me. He had a winsome personality, and, he, uh, man, he was going places. He didn't make it in the NBA. He was drafted, but he didn't make it. But he traveled overseas and played in several uh, leagues in, in Europe. He played in France and Japan. Eventually, the Phoenix Suns hired him as an assistant coach, and he was working in their developmental league program. And uh, last, uh, I think it was July, a year ago, uh, he was... Uh, he was found on the side of the road in Phoenix, Arizona. About two o'clock in the morning, he had gone out and he'd taken his own life. He was a young man in his 30s. He was upwardly moving, and everybody thought he's going to be an NBA coach someday. But he left behind a note on his computer, and his family found it, and he began to talk about who he really was. He said, I've lied, I've stole, I've cheated, I've been dishonest. And he said, I, I'm, I'm totally different than what everybody thinks I am. And he said, and I can't take it any longer. And he wound up taking his own life because sin is never worth it, young person. One of the lies the devil will tell you is it'll be okay, it'll be okay. I'm reminded of a young man. Uh, I was playing high school sports, uh, track and f- field and uh, cross country primarily, but some basketball. There was a guy who lived not too far from me. And he was the first person that uh, I, we were in high school together, rode the school bus together to public school. He was the first guy that offered me drugs. And uh, I, I remember running from it and thinking, it, 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 I didn't physically run from his presence, but my dad had told me, he said, stay away from that stuff. He said, it'll fry your mind. He said, you, and my dad painted such a gravity, such a fear in my heart that I didn't want anything to do with it. And I remember thinking, man, I, you know, and I tried to brush it off. I didn't want to, I I didn't want to seem pious or holier than thou. And so I just said, no, I'm not interested, thanks. And uh, we eventually parted ways and started going different directions, hanging with different crowds. And I went off to Bible college after I graduated from high school and he went off to prison. My dad showed me a newspaper, and above the fold on the front page, I came home for Thanksgiving vacation my freshman year, and he tossed it to me. He said, son, read this, and there was a picture of my friend that I had traveled through high school years with, and it said, it had his picture along with two others, and it said, local man sentenced to 20 years, federal prison. And he and several guys had been out for a night of what they thought was frivolity and fun and they wound up getting stoned and, dr- and drunk out of their minds and went on a, a heinous crime spree that cost him 20 years of his life. I can tell you story after story after story. And so could every one of these uh, adults in here and teachers and your counselors and pastors across this country and around the world. But I'm going to tell you something, young person. Understand and this. Number one, don't ever believe the lie that God doesn't love you. And number two, don't ever believe the lie that sin is worth it because it's never worth it. Thirdly, don't ever believe that you know better. Don't ever believe that you know better. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, obey them that have the rule over you. Sometimes we just throw that out there. We think, okay, I've got to obey because you're in charge and you're calling the shots. And rules are designed for your protection. They really are. I I can remember when I sat in college and I thought, boy, this one doesn't make any sense. I'd like to meet the guy who made this one possible. I went to school with a guy and he used to take great pride in saying that one's for me. I mean, we had some crazy rules, and we used to have, I, where I went to college, they used to have these ducks around the pond area. One of the rules was you could not bring those into the dorms. I'm thinking, who's going to want to bring those things into the dorms? I mean, I, I'm one of those guys that sometimes when I go around ducks and I'm trying to feed them, they attack me, all right? I, I'm not a fan of them, but there was a rule, you could not bring them into the, into the dorm, and I'm thinking, okay, that's a, Brother Mark is over there, he, he is remembering that. But this guy would say, hey, uh, that, that's me. And he, we'd turn to another page, he'd say, that's me. By the way, you don't want that heritage. You don't want to say, hey, look right here, page 27, right there, that's me. That's awesome. But sometimes we think, man, we know better than the authorities, the administrations in our lives. But the, the verse goes on and it says, because they watch for your souls. My wife and I, we have four children. Our two oldest are married and have given us grandchildren. We love all that. But I always ask my girls, I said, listen, would you do me one favor? Would you, would you give me veto power over who you marry? And you might think, well, boy, I don't want to do that to my parents. Well, listen, I, it's not like I was going to pick somebody ugly. But I mean, do you think I want to say, do you have pictures of your grandkids? Oh, no, you, you, you don't want to see this. <laughs> uh, <not laughs> You know, I'd be one of those guys that takes the frames, you know, from Kohl's and says, yeah, this is our kids. No, not really. You know, you know, he's just kind of ashamed of them. Most people walk around boasting of them, and you're all looking, oh, they look so, oh, my soul. Let's have prayer. But I would never pick someone that was, you know, like, hey, uh, you know, I I want you to get some, I, I want you to get God's best for your life. And as I watch for them and, and talk to them about maybe someone that they're with or a friend or a crowd or an influence, but I'm looking out for them and I don't want them to ever think that they know better than those influences that God has placed in their life. My father passed away not quite two years ago and my mother just a few months after that. And I remember as a teenage boy thinking, boy, my, my dad was, was keeping me from so many things. But I realize now my dad was the smartest guy I ever knew. He wasn't only brilliant academically my dad was a voracious reader that he was a he was a college graduate but he did he did 34 years in the military drafted in Korea and then stayed in and did two tours in Vietnam and still managed to get his college degree while he was doing all of that my dad was just brilliant but sometimes my dad would throw caution at me and give me a warning an admonition, and admonition I would think dad you're I'd never say it because I wanted to have all of my teeth but but I, I I would think dad you're not you're not relative you don't understand you don't know this guy but I can tell you this, don't ever believe that you know better. Nobody here has it all figured out. But understand that uh, people that are watching for your souls are doing it. Uh, people that are expecting you to obey, they're doing it because they watch for your souls. They're going to give an account for that. The Bible says that they may do it with joy and not with grief. I ask my children to send me anytime they ever have a question about anything. They'll send me songs, songs. Uh, you know, particularly that may not necessarily be in our stripe, our culture. And I want them to send it to me because I want to listen to it. And I go over it with them. I said, tell me why you think this is spiritual. Tell me you think, why you think it's good. If they hear something from someone or they're reading a book, I, I want to have that discourse with them. You say, why? Because I think I know it all? No, I certainly don't. But I know this. I've been down on the road a little bit longer than they have. And I guarantee you, the people that God places in your life, Your greatest influence are these counselors and teachers and instructors and a mom and a dad back home and a pastor and a youth pastor and those people of influence. Don't ever think that you know better. I remember Ryan. Ryan was a young man in our youth group, and uh, uh, Ryan uh, could not be told by any authority. He always thought they were trying to dampen and hinder him. And so Ryan started out, and I'm going to hustle through this real quickly, but Ryan started out just experimenting with Marijuana was it too long, Ryan got deeper and deeper into drugs, and today Ryan is institutionalized. He can't even put a sentence together because the the drugs and the addiction over all of those years just fried everything. But he had a dad and a mom who were saying, hey, stay away from that stuff. It'll it'll hurt you. I'm not talking just about drugs. I'm talking about influences. I'm talking about friends. I'm talking about the books you read. I'm talking about the music to which you listen. I'm talking about all the influences in your arena of life. Don't ever think for a moment that you know better because none of us do. God will put those people in there for a reason. Don't believe that God doesn't love you. Don't believe that sin is worth it. Thirdly, don't believe that you know better. May I say this fourthly? Don't believe that you can't serve him. Please don't believe that. I remember sitting in chapel one day and it was my sophomore year. And I was sitting back in the middle part, uh, right on the aisle, and me and a couple friends of mine, they, we were both kind of, chapel had not yet begun, and so we were having a good time and, and uh, getting ready for it, and our chapel services were always uh, a delightful time, as, as yours are, and a great time of encouragement and challenge. And I was sitting back there, and uh, we, one fellow probably thought we were having too much fun. By the way, the Bible says, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. It's not my life verse, but I've certainly tried to put it to practice. And so we were laughing and cutting up, and a guy came by, and he looked at us, and he, he patted me on the shoulder. He was a senior, and he said, uh, he said I'm going to tell you something, Stu. He said, you're never going to do anything for God. He said, you're not serious enough. And I remember Brother Shetler, it really crushed me. I mean, because I, 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 I was just sitting there laughing and having fun. And, I, and he, by the way, those other two guys, they're both pastoring still. In fact, all three of us were still pastoring. I don't know what ever happened to the other guy who told us that. I kind of lost track of him after he graduated. But I guarantee you there's probably somebody back home and you think, well, they know everything about you. They've said, what are you thinking about doing, going to Bible college? You're going to preach? You're going to go to the mission field? You'll never make it. You can't make it on debutation. Have you you thought about the difficulties and the the obstacles in your life and the hindrances? And what about this? You've got this weakness and this, this failure and this shortcoming. All of those things. Don't believe for a moment that you can't serve him. You know, one of the greatest Christians that ever lived was the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul gets saved on the road to Damascus. And you think about how magnificent that testimony is. Here he is, and one day he's got orders in his hand to bind up everybody that proclaims the name of Christ. And man, all of a sudden he gets saved, boom, and his life changes so dramatically. But on that road, he says, Lord, what will thou have me to do? God doesn't answer him immediately. He says, arise and go to the city, and it shall be told thee. There's a great lesson there too, by the way. Many times you ask God what's next, and he doesn't tell you. He says, just go to the next city. I'll tell you later. That was an I'll tell you the later moment. But the Apostle Paul, we later learned that there was one standing there when Stephen was stoned, the first martyr there in the book of Acts. And the Bible says that he was there holding the coats. And I can't imagine that it wasn't often in Paul's life that he didn't recall and think back. But what about that moment? What about that season? I'm going to tell you something. If God's forgiven, let me say this. The forgiveness of God doesn't need the approval of man. And if God has forgiven you and you say, yes, but what about my past? Listen, if it's under the blood and you've been genuinely repentant and you've asked God for his mercy, which is new every morning, and if you've asked God for forgiveness, forget about it. Because Paul would later said, this one thing I do, and then he proceeded to give us a three-point outline. But in that outline, he said, forgetting those things which are behind. Why? Because from the platform to the last chair in here, every one of us have a past. Every one of us have things we've done. Every one of us have weaknesses and faults and shortcomings, but don't allow the devil to discourage you and think, you're never going to make it. You're never going to mount for God. You can't serve God. That's a lie from hell. Don't believe you can't serve Some of you just hang it on as we get to the closing days of the semester. Let me, let me caution you. You don't have a plan B for Christian service. Don't, don't think for a moment, well, if this doesn't work out, and if I can't make it, and, I, you know, I'm not even sure, I'm just kind of testing the waters. No, 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 a thousand times no. Don't you believe for one moment that you can't serve God? They just dedicated a yearbook to a servant of God who his brother Shetler said so well used what he had. Whatever you've got, God knows it. He equipped you for a work that you don't even know about yet. And someday when you get there, you'll look back and you'll think, man, I did it not because of me, but because of who he is. So don't ever believe that you can't serve him. Fifthly, may I say this, don't ever believe you have plenty of time. I was jotting some notes for this message, Brother Getch, and I I started going through the names of teens and college-age young people whose funerals I preached. And I got to double digits real fast. And you know, without exception, every one of them thought they had their entire life in front of them. You know, you'd be here today and gone today. You have, uh, the Bible says, boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day brings forth. The Bible says, what is your life? It is but a bit of vapor that appeared for a little time, but they vanished away. I remember one young man, he was in our church and he surrendered to preach and he was a terrific football player and he had football scholarships so he he put that on the back burner christian service and so he went off to college and he started serving started playing football and he was all conference as a sophomore junior and senior but one of the things his coach noted about him was his impeccable character and so he asked him to be the driver the designated driver as the football players would go to parties and different things and so he did that for a year. He never touched touched drugs or alcohol because he said someday I'm gonna serve God. Someday I'm gonna serve God. And uh, his sophomore year the the peer pressure became so overwhelming that he he started to participate. There's a little drink here or there at first. By the way, no one ever becomes a drunk on purpose. They always start with that first drink. And I know our culture is opening the doors, even somewhat in our Christian circles, to go ahead and do that just a little bit. But I'm gonna tell you this, man, I I stood beside the bed of my uncle as he hemorrhaged and blood was coming off the bed. And he was 42 years old, died from cirrhosis of the liver. They don't show you those pictures, but I'll never forget it. But this young man began drinking and experimenting with drugs. By the time he graduated from college, he really was not in any kind of shape to go to Bible college. My wife and I would go by to visit him, and uh, I remember going by his house. Uh, I think it was on a Thursday, and I dropped off a loaf of my wife's bread. She makes them often for people, and I dropped a note off and, and spoke to him. And he said, "Yeah," he said, "I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna get in church. I'm gonna get in church." I was a police chaplain in, our, in the area and community where we were serving, and I was up on the roof of our house, and I, I had my, my radio with me and was listening, and a scan came over about uh, uh, someone in distress, and it gave the address, and I instantly recognized it as his address. I came down off the letter, I told my wife, and I got him a truck, and I headed over there. When I pulled up, I noticed immediately there was the coroner's vehicle. There wasn't anybody in distress, he'd already passed away. He'd been sitting in an easy chair, dead for several days from an overdose. But I heard him preach when he was a teenage boy, and his name's in my Bible, I'll never forget it. I heard him preach and I thought, that guy's gonna do something. But I remember in his mind, he never saw himself going out at 24. He thought he had his entire life in front of him. What are the lies that you will learn and hear often? You got plenty of time. I don't have to get serious about ministry right now. After all, this is college. No, 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 this is ministry now. One of the greatest opportunities you have is to learn from those with whom you walk. Your teachers, your professors, your co-laborers. This is, this is not something I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just uh, study right now and then someday down the road I'll start serving God. Don't miss it, don't miss it, don't miss it. What you have right now, the opportunities that are in front of you, you have no guarantee of tomorrow. You have no promise of 5, 10 years, 15 years Now, God may give you that if he does, wonderful, and to God be the glory, but don't think for a moment that you have all the time in the world, that you have plenty of time, because what is your life? It is but a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Number one, don't believe that God doesn't love you. Number two, don't believe that sin is worth it. Number three, don't believe that you know better. Number four, don't believe you can't serve him. Number five, don't believe you have plenty of time. They may say this, don't believe you're the exception. Don't believe you're the exception. You know, every time we are cautioned or challenged about anything, we always think, yeah, I know that's so-and-so, that applies to them. Many times we've been in church and we've thought, boy, so-and-so needed to hear that. Do you realize that every message that's ever delivered is for you? It's not like God, and it wouldn't matter, and I'm not saying it just because it doesn't matter who preached yesterday, who's preaching tomorrow, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the text is, what the message title is, what the content, what songs are sung. When you showed up today, it wasn't like God said, didn't know he was coming, don't have anything for him. I'll just have to wing it. Oh, look who showed up. God doesn't work that way. I remember growing up in the South, and every time I went to my grandmother's house, it didn't matter what time of day it was, there was always something warm on the stove. If you got there after breakfast, breakfast was still there. Some of it was still there. So if you came by, you got something. If you came after lunch late, there was still something on the stove. It didn't matter. There was always something. And every time you show up to hear the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, always know that God has something for you. But sometimes in our lives we think, well, yeah, but I'm different. I'm the exception. And I know that most of the time that's true, but it doesn't apply to me. Not in this case. And I hear you, Brother Getch and Brother Shatler, and Brother Rasmus and Brother Weaver, all these great men and ladies who teach you. I know, and I know this illustration. All of that makes sense, but it does not apply to me. Don't ever think you're the exception. i reminder reminded of the story of Robert Hall. Robert Edwin Hall was born in January 1961 in New Zealand, and he had a fascination with climbing. And uh, he began training very early, at an early age, uh, training in what's known as the Southern Alps. The Southern Alps in New Zealand have a maximum altitude of about uh, uh, 12,000 feet elevation. Um, probably similar to what is California Mount Whitney? Is that the highest peak in California, I think? And uh, so, so it's fairly similar. But boy, he wanted to go bigger and he wanted to go higher. And he, he had such goals and aspiration. He wanted to someday conquer Everest, the highest mountain in the world, just over 29,000 feet. And he met a guy named Gary Ball, and Gary Ball and him became fast friends, and they started uh, traveling the globe. And almost every time they they would climb a mountain, they they would become more daring than ever before. They realized they would have to take great risks and great challenges because mountain climbing is so expensive, they needed sponsors, so that every time they felt they had to up the ante. In fact, they were the first ones to accomplish the feat known as the Seven Summits. And they accomplished it in seven months. That is climbing the highest peak on each of the seven continents. And they started in May with Everest and ended in December in Antarctica, Mount Vincent, the the highest peak there. And over those seven months, man, they just said, boy, I'll tell you what we got to do. We got to find and open and orchestrate our own climbing firm. And they did. It was called Adventure Consultants. And they would take people on... These hikes, not even a hike, mountain climbing experiences. And I'm not talking about, you know, we have the idea I'm going to go on a hike. That's not not what this is. These people would go where no one else goes hardly. But adventure consultants quickly gained the notoriety as being the best, best mountain uh, mountain guide experience on the planet. And it was very expensive. In fact, to climb with him and his team, to climb Mount Everest cost you about 65 grand. You had about 25,000 for permits to get to climb Mount Everest. You take a flight over to Nepal, Kathmandu, and a little puddle jumper, and then you'd get to an area where you'd start hiking to base camp. Base camp is just under 20,000 feet. There's camp one, two, three, and four, and from four, you try to summit on the very last day. But all of that time takes great time to get acclimated and get your body used to it. We're not used to breathing at 19,000 feet. Sherpas who are native to that area, they can. It's not a a big deal to them. They're born in that environment. But nonetheless, Robert Hall and and his group, Adventure Consultants, started in 1992. And by 1996, they had successfully brought 36 people to the peak of Mount Everest. In fact, at his time, he had climbed Mount Everest more than any other non-Sherpa. Amazing, amazing story. But that when they get to uh, the last camp, as they have now acclimated over a period of weeks, you don't just say, I'm going to go to Mount Everest and show up and, hey, when do we start? You literally go from Camp 1 to Camp 2 and then come back as your body adjusts to the climate. Unbelievable, the harshest conditions on the planet. Mount Everest is literally at the jet stream. 29,000 feet, it's not unusual for winds to be gusting 70, 80, 90, even in excess of 100 miles an hour. Brutal, brutal conditions. There's a very small window, typically in May, when the conditions abate somewhat. And at that moment, that is when they try to make their summit, typically May. Such was the case, May 10th, 1996. Robert Hall is gathered at Camp Four. They can see Mount Everest, it's clear. They look up there at some of the banners that had been planted by previous expeditions, and they can see them barely a wisp in the wind. And they realize that if we're gonna go, tomorrow's our day. They would leave on, at midnight because the typical ascent from Camp 4 to the summit would take you anywhere from 8 to 10 hours. And it was, uh, in terms of distance, it was just over a mile, 1.07 miles, but a vertical ascent of over 3,000 feet in elevation. So you can imagine the degree of difficulty. In some places, you're literally climbing a 90-degree wall of ice in the most inhospitable conditions on the planet. But as Robert began to meet with each one of those individuals, and he said, we leave at midnight. And he said, but I got to give you some very serious instructions, and this is most important. And that is at 2 p.m., regardless of where you are on the slope, if you're on the south Col, the, the last trek before you reach the summit, it doesn't matter. At 2 p.m., you turn around because you have to get back to this camp before dark sets or you won't survive. So he goes around to every single person in the tent, and he looks at them, he says, 2 p.m., you'll turn around, won't you? they said, yes, sir. 2 p.m., Doug Hanson was there. Lou Koschecki was there, among others. And he'd go to each one. There was a Japanese young lady who was going for her country. And there was a, a John Krakauer, who was a, a, an author for Outdoor Magazine. And he'd go to each one of them. 2 p.m., you'll turn around. Yes, sir. 2 p.m., you'll turn around. They all knew it. They all knew the rule. And they all knew the risks. So at 2 p.m., if you're not at the summit, you've got to turn around. Doug Hanson was one of those guys. And he had, he had tried to a summit it two years prior. He got within 300 feet of the summit and he turned around because he knew I've got to turn around. 300 feet, we're talking about the distance across this auditorium practically. And he turned around. But on this day, Doug Henson said, I'm not turning around. And so he had already been to the summit, Robert had been to the summit with several of his men and he comes back and he, he, he encounters Doug Henson. And Doug Henson says, I, I'm not turning around. He said, "I know what you said. It's 2 p.m. We got to turn around." He said, "You will not make it if you don't turn around." He said, "I'm going to turn around." There was another man standing next to him. His name was Luke Kashkei. Luke Kashkei was from Michigan. His father was a pastor, and he he said at that moment he heard the voice. The title of his book is entitled "After the Wind." And he said he dug his snow pick into the ground and got on both knees. Temperature's 20 to 30 below zero. The wind is blowing 70 miles an hour. And he says, you gotta turn around. Because he knew the time. Robert Hall, Doug Hanson, and two others in that group ignored the most fundamental rule they made for those entire weeks of preparation. 2 p.m., you turn around or you die. But I guarantee in the back of Robert's mind, I can do this. And every temptation that you'll ever face and every lesson and learning that you'll ever get in this life, you'll face the temptation to believe you're the exception. I know what the pastor said. I know what my teacher said. I know what my dad said, but, but I'm the exception. Robert Hall's body was found 13 days later. It's frozen, completely encased in ice on the South Pole. At 28,000 feet of elevation, he froze to death. His body remains there as a reminder to everybody who passes that point, as do the bodies entombed in ice of so many others who thought, I'm the exception. I can make it. I'm going to tell you something, young people. There are many falsehoods to failure. But one of the greatest that traps so many of us is when we believe we're the exception. I gave you six quick thoughts this morning. Number one, I'm gonna tell you this, you are loved. I don't care who you are, you are loved. Number two, your sin is never gonna be worth it. Number three, we do not know better. Number four, I have no promise of tomorrow. Number five, you can serve God. And number six, don't ever fall for the lie that you are the exception. The Bible says that the devil is a liar from the beginning. And he's trapped so many souls over the years. And young man, he's after you. Young lady, he's after you. Don't believe the falsehoods to failure.